0: Welcome to our Lord's. We're a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus, aren't we? And it's Father's Day, as we mentioned. So you fathers that are able to do it, why don't you stand up? We want to honor the fathers, give thanks for you, say a quick prayer. Yes. Thank you, fathers. We love you. We're grateful for you. Sacrifices you make, wrestling that happens at home with your kids jumping on you, hard work. So why don't we just extend our hands to bless our fathers here. And if you're watching at home, you can have your dad stand up in the living room and pray for him. So Father, we do. We say that every good and perfect gift comes from you. You are the father of all fathers. And we thank you for these men Thank you for their love for you, their love for their families, their hard work, and we just call down your blessing on them today. Thank you for them. Bless them today in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. I may have you stand up three or four more times, but we'll we'll see. What a time this is in our country, huh? What a time this is. Kelly was referencing all that the Lord's brought us through, a worldwide pandemic, protests, various political battles, and the media loving all of it, pouring fuel, gasoline on it. So now is the time to seek God, to be the church the people of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we've been talking about it in recent weeks. We're hopeful. Yes, your heart can break and ache, and we're in touch with what's going on. But at the same time, we've been talking about we're the Lord's army of love, right? And we talk about it. We're not an audience. We don't sit back and watch. We don't gather together and just sit and do nothing. But God's gifted each of us and empowered us to be his people We've talked about it recently. We're engaged in spiritual warfare and we're able as the church to look beyond people, right? And that tenderizes our hearts so that we're not angry and hateful toward particular politicians, but we realize spiritual forces are at work. So in recent weeks, we've been talking about that. And really, if we view the spiritual practices that we've been looking at, interacting with God through the Bible, meditation on scripture, Prayer in all its forms, and today we're going to look at fasting. These are spiritual weapons that God has given to the church to use in times like this. Times like this especially. So what I want us to look at today, we're going to do this for two weeks. I started to get into it and was talking with Amanda, the wisest counselor I've got. And she said, we don't really get to hear much about fasting so, I was trying to cram a bunch in today. We're going to take two weeks. I'm going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about reasons for fasting today. And then next week, we're going to talk about the results. What are the fruits of fasting? And some of you are saying, I'm hungry. <laughs> Do we have to talk about fasting? And we're going to acknowledge that. Fasting is work. And for those of you turkeys that it's not work for, it, we. Uh, maybe you can pray for us. You know, I've met a few people that say fasting actually comes pretty easy, and I don't understand you. But that's all right. For most of us, fasting is work, and it requires the grace of God. And really, fasting, as we look at it, is abstaining for, from food, especially for spiritual purposes. That's what it is. And we're going to look at some of the, the biblical dimensions of fasting today. Um, Before we do that, though, I want to acknowledge some of the common misguided views on fasting. And one of them is avoidance. We raise the the topic of fasting, and for many Christians, we just simply avoid it. And it may not be deliberate. It may just be from a lack of knowledge or experience. Perhaps spiritual leaders and particular local churches don't talk about it. Some people avoid it because they say it's an Old Testament practice. Some might say, well, we're New Covenant people and that was an Old Covenant practice, an idea. And that's not what the New Testament shows us. We're gonna see in Acts 13 and even 2 Corinthians 4, we find the people of God and the apostle Paul fasting. It was something that continued It was introduced in the Old Testament. And as we'll see, it's infused with new meaning. It's infused with abundant grace. It's not a requirement. And I just want to say, listen to me. God does not need us to fast. Does God need anything from you? Can anyone think right now, what does God need from you? Anything? God chooses to involve us in this whole thing his story the plan of salvation he is not sitting there going oh ben i wish you would fast i can't do this until ben fasts and almost starves himself to death you know that's sadistic no we have a loving father and we're going to look into the scriptures that will show us this we fasting for us and there is great mystery in it that we'll see That sometimes God chooses to raise up people and give them the spirit of fasting and grace them and he draws us in. But God does not need anything from us. And boy, that liberates me. Does that free you up? God chooses to let us worship and be involved. And really the only thing that I have that I can offer to God is my need for him. And then it just reframes everything. You love me. I need you. You can even empower me to fast, even if I don't like it. Which, frankly, I don't really like it. But I'm here before you today inviting us into fasting. So that's one thing. And with this idea of avoiding it, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 16, whenever you fast, So he said earlier in Matthew 6, whenever you pray, so he's assuming that the church will pray, and then he's assuming there in Matthew 6, 16, whenever you fast. So Jesus expects us and invites us into fasting, and we'll we'll hear more from him in a moment. A second problem or misguided view about fasting is that it's overdone. It's legalistic. You feel me? It's super spiritual. Paul talks about this in Colossians 2. You can look at it later, but he addresses some of the false teachers that were in the Colossian church, and they were requiring people to fast. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. You are liberated and freed, and you would fast because of an invitation by the grace of God. And so he has to take on these proto-Gnostics, these early Gnostics, and address that. So that second reason, it's overdone. I love this quote. This is one of my favorite Desert Fathers from the fourth century, John Cashin, and listen to what he says. As the Desert Fathers have said, all extremes are equally harmful. It is as dangerous to fast too much as it is to overfill the stomach. Let that sink in. So this is one of the greatest teachers on fasting in the whole Christian tradition. In all of church history, this guy devoted 40 plus years to fasting as a lifestyle. And did you hear what he said? All extremes are equally harmful. It's as dangerous to fast too much as it is to fill your stomach. So it can be overdone. So what's the solution, Brock? The solution is to cultivate a consistent practice of fasting that's biblical and moderate. We'll say that together. Biblical and moderate. What kind of faster are you going to be? Biblical and moderate, right? taking care of our bodies we're going to look at this especially next week we'll talk about some things like eating disorders and health issues and some of these things we're going to address that right christian history the christian tradition can speak to all of those things it can answer our questions so reasons for fasting let's look at the first one and if you want to look in your bible at nehemiah 1 4 nehemiah 1 4 and you can look at the table of contents in your bible if you need to Nehemiah 1, four, and while you're looking there, I just want to acknowledge some of the people that I've learned about fasting from over the last 30 years. And I've already mentioned one, a desert father, John Cashin. Another is one of my theological mentors, Wayne Grudem, has a great section in his systematic theology on fasting. And another is John Piper. And frankly, I disagree with these guys in certain areas. But I've learned a great deal from them. So some of what I'm talking about today, I've gleaned from them over the years. So one of the reasons for fasting is to intensify intercessory prayer. And this is found in Nehemiah 1.4. And what we're going to do today, because it's more kind of topical, we're going to look, we're going to take an overview and look at some of these passages, a handful of reasons for fasting. So Nehemiah 1.4 and as you 're turning there or looking there on your phone, or you can look up here on the slides, this is a passage about Nehemiah, who is about five hundred and fifty years before Christ. We looked at Nehemiah a few months ago, and he went on to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after the Jews were in exile and He had heard the report about survivors that were coming in and resettling. And at verse 4 of Nehemiah 1, it says that Nehemiah sat down and wept. And he mourned for days. And what's the text say? What's he do? He sat down, he wept, he mourned, and what? He was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So I just want to say, All of our fasting and praying is before the God of heaven. God, the God of heaven, the Lord of the universe, allows us to pray and to seek His face. And Nehemiah knew that. So here he was in this dire situation, with a broken heart, and he says, "Lord, I'm going to choose to sit before You in the midst of the people and not eat." I'm going to let my body demonstrate to you that we need you, that we're hungry for you. Another, Esther 4.3. I'm just going to read from it. You can turn there if you want. Again, it's on the slide. But just another example from Scripture about the role of fasting in intercessory prayer. Some of you know the story in Esther and we've got Mordecai and Esther learning of Haman's plans here. He's going to destroy the Jews. We can't go into it. But another situation where the people felt powerless and hopeless. And Esther 4.3 says that they led great mourning among the Jews again with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And then very quickly, Daniel 9.3, and we'll look at the next one after this. But in Daniel 9, this is really intriguing. Daniel as a man of the word, a man of scripture, has been studying the words of Jeremiah. And at Daniel 9.3, it says, based on that, Daniel turned to the Lord. So he's reading scripture. He's interacting with God through scripture. He turns to the Lord. To seek an answer by prayer and supplication with what? With fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So really we learn in this first point here that sometimes fasting is the best response in a dire situation. If we're desperate, we maybe feel hopeless. Lord, would you move? And it fuels a sense of urgency. Some of you have been fasting over the last four months. I think that's wonderful. We're in a situation where you may be entering into fasting for the first time. So we need the Lord. We need the Lord to move. We realize, Lord, we need your help. Would you empower your people? Raise up your church. A second reason we fast is to repent. Some of you are looking at your watch saying, is it lunch yet? Fasting, mourning, repenting. Friends, we are the family of grace. So I want us to even redeem these words. You know what repentance is? Turning to God. Some of us picture repentance. It's that self-flagellation. Woe is me. I'm awful. If you're doing that, that is not repentance. (laughs) Repentance is turning to God. God. And that is wonderful. That's what the scriptures teach. New Testament word metanoia means turn to God. And that is joyful and liberating. So if you're self-flagellating and saying, woe is me and I'm terrible and I need to repent, then you need to rediscover what biblical repentance is. Because it is a good and wonderful thing. Amen? So 1 Samuel 7, 6. We see fasting as an expression of repentance. And again, I appreciate you bearing with me because I'm kind of distilling the stories here to illustrate. But in response to Samuel, David is going to do something here. David calls Israel to return to the Lord. And again, I can't go into all the details of this story. But he's basically inviting the people, Samuel is, through David to gather together and look at verse 6, 1 Samuel 7, 6, they gather at Mizpah, they drew, drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And then what did they do? They fasted that day and they say, Lord, we've sinned against you. And so we find in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there's lots of symbolic actions that are going on here. And truthfully, we don't know exactly what's going on. Why would they pour out water and theologians and commentators will theorize about it? But Really, we do know that it's an outward demonstration of an inward reality. That's what's happening in this moment. They're taking physical, natural objects and using them to express what's going on inside. And then we saw that in the previous passage. Why in the world would you put on sackcloth and ashes? And it's a physical reminder and expression. We're turning to God, we're praying. We're fasting and we're using some of these things like aids to help us. These are physical objects that are enabling us to engage more deeply, like the sacraments, right? Let's look at Jonah three five. Some of you know this story. I love Jonah. I love the the story of this reluctant, pretty pitiful prophet, and I can identify with him at many, many times in life. But Jonah three five, how are we doing? Doing okay. The people of Nineveh, Jonah's bringing a word of warning to them, and the people of Nineveh, after hearing the call to repent through Jonah the prophet, what do they do? Jonah 3 5, they believe God, they proclaim a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth and repented before God. Jonah didn't like that, did he? He was like, Lord, I wanted you to judge them. This makes me look foolish. And the Lord didn't. The Lord relented. Joel 2.12. And again, we'll move on after this, but this is another reason for prayer and fasting. Joel 2.12. Interestingly, this comes before the great Pentecost passage. Joel 2.12 says this, even now declares the Lord, I love this. Return to me. Let's say that together. Return to me. So fasting, repentance, is what? A return to God. It's saying, I'm returning to you in this moment. I've drifted. I've strayed. I'm distracted. My mind's fragmented. The media is going to work on me. And so through fasting and prayer, I'm returning to you. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So the point of this, friends, hear me, okay? We've already seen God does not need us to fast. Would you agree with that? You agree? God does not need us to fast. Does God need us to grovel before him? Bethany, you're not groveling enough. I need you to grovel more. I need you to fast more. That is not what God is saying. The Old Testament teaches us from the very beginning. In the first five books of Moses, in the book of Exodus, it says that God is good, that God is love, that God is slow to anger and quick to forgive. That is the God that we serve. So if the Lord calls you to fast and pray and enter a season of repentance for yourself, for loved ones, for your country, keep in mind his character. He is full of love. He is quick and ready to forgive. He is full of grace. Exodus 33 and 34 say this. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, and forgiveness. God is good. God is good. And to repent is to turn to him and receive his goodness. A third reason that we fast is to express worship. Look at Luke 2, 37, Luke 2, 37. Bethany was texting yesterday and she said, I love this character in Luke 2. She's one of my favorites, I've learned so much from her. Look at Luke 2, 37. Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple and we hear about this wonderful older woman A widow, age 84, Anna. And look what it says. Luke 2.37 says that Anna never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer sometimes. Is that what the text says? No, night and day. So Anna is so in love with the Lord and so expectant of what God is doing that she's worshiping and praying and fasting in the Lord's presence. And she ends up in that posture, in that place the Lord speaks to her. And she's one of the first to welcome the Messiah, the baby Jesus, because she was in a place of expectancy and fasting and prayer. Isn't she a beautiful image here? Just seeing this, this woman is 84 years old, and she's filled with fire. I was thinking of her when I read this quote by another one of my favorite desert writers, and listen to what he says. Maximus says that some Christians fast out of love for God. Some Christians simply fast out of love for God, and I think that describes Anna here. She was so gripped by the love of God, by the presence of God. So devoted, she was tapped into something and I'm like, I want what Anna had. Whatever that was, Lord, can you just give me a little bit of that? She fasted out of love for God. Acts thirteen two. very quickly here. This is one of Mike Milner's favorite texts because he's getting ready to live it, going to plant a church in Guam. And this is the, the church, Acts 13, 1 to 4, and they're gathered together, a group of them. And in the midst of seeking the Lord, look at look what they, they do here. They're at Antioch, and the community, including prophets and teachers, was worshiping the Lord. How at verse 2? Fasting and prayer. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to them in this context, and there's something worshipful about their fasting. Does anyone else want to learn about worshipful fasting? I do. Whatever the other obligatory, dreadful, heavy approaches to fasting, I'm like, Lord, can we just lose that and teach us about fasting in the spirit of love? Fasting in the spirit of worship, like Anna. And like the early church. And I think the Lord's eager to do that. And I'm going to urge you next week, we're going to start small. So some people, I think, uh, are self-defeating because they say, I want to be a faster. I want to be like Anna. And so I'm going to go on a week-long fast. I'm not going to do anything but drink water for the next week. And I would say, friends, don't do that. (laughs) Unless you're a rare person, that's going to be tough. We're going to talk about easing into the water a little bit. I'm going to say, skip a meal. Learn about Daniel fasting, where you remove certain things from your diet, these kinds of things. We'll talk more about some of the practical things. Okay, a fourth reason for fasting, to seek guidance. And again, we touched on that in Acts 13, but look at Isaiah 58. This is a passage we're going to spend some time with next week. But over the next week, if you want to learn more about fasting, read Isaiah 58 write that down right now enter it into your phone spend some time in Isaiah 58 it is one of the passages in the whole of scripture that will instruct you about the kind of fasting that God chooses and he, he says that explicitly through the prophet Isaiah he said this is the kind of fasting that I want you to engage in and if you do this then these things will happen And so that's the whole point of Isaiah 58. And so at verse 11, look what happens. For those who fast, and we're going to see next week that along with your fasting, you're sharing with the poor and doing some of these things. But look what happens. Isaiah 58, 11. The Lord will guide you continually. So there's something woven into the practice of fasting where we're seeking God's guidance. Lord, lead me. Lord, guide me. Lord, lead my friend. Guide my friend. I'm fasting on their behalf. I'm seeking you. My spirit's engaged, my body is engaged, and I'm seeking your guidance. We just saw in Acts 13 as well, along with fasting as worship, the early church was seeking guidance from the Lord, weren't they, in that text? We're seeing that worship and fasting, ministering to the Lord is preparation for missional activity. So it was the church, I think, saying, we can't do this without you. We need your guidance. We need you to assemble the right people, assemble the right teams, fill us with power, anoint us, guide us and direct us to the right people to take the gospel and to plant churches. And friends, this is what we're going to be doing. In the coming days, we're going to engage in prayer. We're already doing it to some extent. We're going to fast. We're going to seek the Lord's guidance. And we're going to expect God to establish his kingdom in certain places where we don't see it yet, including Guam. Acts 14, 23, we're not going to read it, but again, it's the early church showing that they would fast and pray All the time, consistently. And they were fasting and praying. Paul and Barnabas were after they were sent out. Before they appointed elders in the church. So they were seeking guidance. Lord, who are the leaders? Guide us and show us who they are and then we'll appoint them. We'll lay hands on them but we're fasting and praying. A fifth thing here. A reason for fasting. This one's intriguing look at Exodus 34, 28. You probably recognize I love the Old Testament. I love it. Uh, look at your Bible. How much of your Bible is Old Testament material? Let's look at it here. What would you say? Maybe three quarters? And so I want to make sure that we spend a lot of time we move through old testament new testament that's often what i do you know i don't just start with the new testament focus there it's the full blossoming of the promises in the old testament but i think it's very important to see the continuity between the old and new testament the old testament's amazing and beautiful and filled with promises and we know from luke 24 we read the old testament through christ Right? But look at this beautiful passage about fasting, Exodus 34 28. And the context here is the covenant is being renewed between the Lord and his people Israel. And Moses is ascending Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord. And look at what happens here. The Lord instructs Moses to record the words of the covenant so that the people can live by them. And look at verse 28. Moses, is this a typo? What? Is this the typo? Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. That must have been something. (laughs) What was going on that Moses was so caught up in the presence of God that he did not eat or drink? It says he neither ate bread nor drank water. So Exodus 34, 28. And it is letting us know something here. Bear with me a moment here. Isn't this the guy in Exodus 33 who knew the Lord face to face? He was friends with the Lord. Unique in the whole prophetic tradition. And yet, the Lord's inviting him into 40 days and 40 nights of interaction with him. And so the fifth reason scripture teaches is to receive revelation. And we'll see visions for Old Testament and New Testament saints. Some of you are glazed over. What? Yes, the Lord invites us into fasting and prayer to hear his voice. That's what Moses was modeling here. As someone who was friends with the Lord face to face, he was still invited into a deeper place of revelation. And I think he was feasting. On the Lord, who He is, in His presence, and He had plenty to eat and drink there because the Lord sustained Him. Now, don't, don't mishear me here. Again, I had some friends in Chicago during seminary that launched into 40 day fasts before they knew what they were doing. Some of them, I, I don't know how they did it, but they looked like prisoners of war before it was over, you know, oh my gosh, you've lost 40 pounds. What's going on here? So again, we're going to talk about this. I am not wanting us to hear these stories and then go enact them. Do you hear me on that? Wisdom. We already heard what John Cashin said, one of the greatest teachers on fast. Moderation, friends. So don't walk out of here and say, well, I think the Lord's calling me to a 40-day fast unless you've got a lot of experience and counsel and wisdom. All right? So, we're not going to look at this passage, but 1 Kings 19, 8 and 9, Elijah, the same thing. He's emulating Moses the prophet, and he goes 40 days without food, and the Lord sustains him. And during that time, it's preparing him to have an encounter with the Lord, and it's where he actually goes to the cave, where Moses interacted with the Lord earlier, and he encounters the voice of the Lord. So... Scripture teaches that we fast and pray to receive a revelation of who God is, and it may include visions, these kinds of things. Another desert father, listen to what he says. This is Evagrius. Michael, you remember Evagrius. By the way, this uh, friend of mine here on the front row, why don't you wave your hand? This is Michael and Benita Muth from Georgia. They're driving through town, and he sent me an email and said, we're in Oklahoma City. He hired me and put up with me at Wesleyan for seven years. So he is a saint. We're glad that they're here with us. And he loves the Desert Fathers, right? So Evagrius said, fasting prepares you for God's presence. I'm going to say that again. Fasting prepares you for God's presence. To receive from the Lord. A sixth and final thing about fasting is that, well, I'm gonna let's read it and then we'll talk about it. Matthew 9, 14 to 15. We're ending with this because it's beautiful. And some of you may have not thought of fasting in these terms, in this light, so we're going to the Master Himself, Jesus, who knew a little bit about fasting, who lived a lifestyle of fasting and dependence on. His father and doing only what the father was leading them to do. But Matthew 9, 14 to 15, look at this. And a little bit of context here. Jesus has been approached, and the disciples of John the Baptist are asking Jesus, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast, Jesus. What's going on? And what does Jesus say here? Look at it. He's going to use some word picture here, some metaphorical language. He says, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What does that mean? Jesus, could you just come out and say why? Why don't your disciples fast? And he says, I'm going to give you this beautiful word picture. The Jews were accustomed to fasting all through the year. And Jesus presents them, the people that are asking this question, he presents them with a word picture from the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah 62, that describes God's people as his bride. And so Jesus is framing fasting in the spirit of the bridegroom and the bride. And so the final reason here that we fast is to express longing for Jesus and his return. Isn't that what the text says? The text is saying there, the time will come when I am taken away, the bridegroom, and my bride, my people, will fast in that time period. Why? Because they love me, and they want me, and they want me to return. So this is something I don't think that we think about a lot. Why do we fast, church? For these many reasons here, but we fast because we long for Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We're your people. We're your beloved. We're your bride. You love us so much. We give ourselves to you, and we long for you to return. Come quickly, Jesus. Maranatha, come quickly. Come and set things right. Come establish your kingdom. Come bring true justice. Come bring your people together. Come and heal. Come and save. That is what we're saying when we fast and pray. I know, friends, there's some heavy stuff in this. We've addressed it a little bit. We'll talk about it more next week. But I want to end with a couple of funny stories. All right? Two other people that I've learned a lot of fasting from. One is Shavda, And he's an Indian evangelist who has devoted many years to traveling among unreached people, sharing the gospel. And that brother has fasted a whole lot. So I've read his books. And I remember one time I got to hear him speak in person. And he told this story. And I think at that moment, he was even in the midst of a 40-day fast. And he goes, friends, I want to tell you, it hasn't been easy. And he tells this hilarious story that he was in the middle of a fast. And he was deep into it. And so he's maybe 20 days in. I can't remember. And he said during his fast that he heard a voice in the kitchen. And it was his potato chips calling. <laughs> From the pantry. And here's Mahash who's fasted many, many times, and he was saying, we're salty. We're crunchy. We are oh so yummy. Mahesh, come, enjoy us. And Mahesh said, all the willpower I had drained out of me. And what did I do? I ended up in the pantry and I ate the whole bag of salty potato chips. And so friends, there's grace There is grace. That brother has fasted as much as any modern person I know. And he was modeling, there is grace in God. We're not perfect. And the Lord sees us. And Isaiah 30, 18 says, the Lord longs to be gracious to us. So in fasting, the Lord longs to take that little embryonic desire we've got and to say, I'm going to make you a faster. I'm going to teach you about fasting and prayer. Another story that I love Actually, I'm going to wait for that one. We'll do that one next week. We'll end with. So, Lord, I just ask that in your grace, even on this Father's Day, that we would have your love so rooted in our hearts, that we would be immersed in your love, and that we would fast and pray out of that place. I'm just, I'm just picturing um, fasting is almost what might shove you under the waterfall of God's grace. That is what fasting is. God's grace and love is like a waterfall pouring all the time. And it may be that sometimes we're just not under it. So a little bit of earnest fasting and prayer shoves us under that. And again, it's the grace of God. All nudges, all fasting, all prayer. We can't do it without him. So Father, we ask you to grace us afresh today to raise up within us a fresh spirit of fasting and prayer so that we could seek your face and give us wisdom, help us to do it biblically and in moderation. And we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.